this is your first time here, we've been going through 1 Corinthians. We preach verse by verse through whole books of the Bible. And right now we find ourselves in the fifth chapter of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthian church. In this chapter we have seen issues, uh, the next issue that Paul has with this problem church. We've seen the last two weeks that there was a man in the Corinthian church that was having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. Paul addressed this in the very first verse of chapter 5. What made it worse beyond what the man was doing was that the church was arrogant, Paul said, and ignored this man's sin. So Paul gave them an example, and we saw this last week, how by giving them a saying that was common throughout the Old Testament and culture of the day, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The lump of dough being the church, and the leaven in this situation being the man who had sinned in this way. What Paul is trying to tell them is, if you leave sin undealt with, sin will poison the church, just like it poisons our lives. So as Israel was to remove leaven from their homes during the Feast of Unleavened Bread for those seven days, as they observed the Passover, so the church is to clean out the leaven from within itself before the whole church is influenced by sin. And therefore, Paul instructs the Corinthians to remove this man from among them, to excommunicate him, if you will, to deliver him over to Satan, some very strong language Paul says about this man. And that language, deliver him over to Satan, Paul is literally saying for the Lord to deal with him and treat him as if he is an unbeliever. Since he's living as an unbeliever, he needs to be treated as an unbeliever. And this is what we call today church discipline. Church discipline is for the purity of the church, the soul of the sinning church member who refuses to repent and be held accountable to the word of God. And this is not for punishment. We don't punish people. But for the sake of restoration and true repentance. If this person who's acting in such a way and is showing evidence that they're not a Christian, then we pray that this such action will help restore them to repentance and their relationship with God. Let's go to verse 9 now as we continue what Paul says to them. In verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. 1 Corinthians is apparently not the first letter that Paul wrote to this church. Now, I know some of you are asking, Dan, can you do a five good minutes on what happened to that other letter? Well, it doesn't need five minutes. I'll tell you in 10 seconds. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know what happened to that other letter. It was apparently lost and faded away with time. Why is it in our Bibles? Well, because it wasn't supposed to be. That's the short and simple answer. Not everything that Paul wrote in his life was scripture. Not everything he wrote was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the reason that we know that this other letter that he had written to them previously is not scripture is because if it were, God would have preserved it. God has promised to preserve his word. The word of God stands the test of time and will never go away. This is what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, 
but the word of our God will stand forever. The word of God is preserved by God, and what we have today is what was written then. The fact that we don't have this other letter that Paul wrote tells us it was never meant to be scripture. So, Paul, what did you write? Because even though we don't have that letter, we do know some of what is in the letter because Paul references it here. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. This word, not to associate with, literally means not to mix with. Not to mix with. Or in the context of people, it's speaking about relationships that we have. So the word is, maybe you could translate it this way, do not mingle with. Do not mix with. Do not mingle with those who are sexually immoral. And in the context of this chapter, it makes a lot of sense because Paul is continuing his argument. And what was Paul's argument in the previous passage? As you are not to mix the leaven in the dough during the Feast of Unleavened Bread to remind yourselves of the forgiveness and hope you have in God, you are to eat unleavened bread. So you are not to mix the leaven anymore in the fresh lump, which you are now in Christ. And so do not, as you, if you're going to remove this man from among you, do not mix or mingle with and include him into back into your fellowship while he's still living this way. And, of course, the sexually immoral people references this type of person. So who were they not to associate with? Again, sexually immoral people. This is the Greek word porneia that Paul uses here. It's where we get our word, English word pornography. But in the first century, as we've said before, Porneia refers to all kinds of sexual sin. It refers to homosexuality and uh, extramarital affairs and premarital sex and uh, incest and etc., etc., etc. It covered a wide range of sexual sin. And so Paul's just not talking about this one man's sin, but he's talking in general of the sin of Porneia that he says here. But apparently, the Corinthians didn't understand what Paul was trying to say in that other letter because he says in verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or of the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. You see, what was happening here, and Paul is saying very clearly, he wrote them in another letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So this is what they were doing. They avoided all lost people out in the world. So they weren't sharing the gospel. They weren't telling people about Jesus. They weren't telling, they weren't eating or going to places where lost people were. They would just ignore them. But Paul's saying, I didn't tell you to ignore them. I was telling you to ignore the people who are, say they're Christians within the church. Because if you were to avoid all the people out in the world, then what are you to do? You'd have to lead the world. Why? Because the world is full of people. If this were true, you wouldn't be able to get, go to the store. You wouldn't be able to go to a restaurant. You wouldn't be able to pay the electric company or use a cell phone or watch TV or do business at a local bank. Why? Because there's sexual immoral people everywhere around you. And so I'm not telling you to do that because you're in the world. You have to operate in the world with people who don't know God and to live in ways that are not godly. 
And what the Corinthians were doing, by ignoring the sin in their own church, and by ignoring the people out in the world, was hypocrisy. Because they are saying that what these people are doing are wrong, but what we're doing is okay. That is a double standard. They were not treating the people within their church the same way they treat the people outside the church when it comes to sin. Paul says, you cannot do this. That is to act like a Pharisee when you have a double standard, when you are a hypocrite. But Paul just doesn't say sexual sin. He also includes in here, I also told you not to associate with the greedy, the swindlers, the idolaters. But again, this does not mean the people who are in the world. You are to go share the gospel with them and influence them for Christ and calling them to repentance. So who are you talking about, Paul? Like we said, people in the church. What, look what he says in verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty. So let's just talk about this for a minute. Again, he is very specific. This is what Paul is saying. You are operating incorrectly. You're operating in a way that is hypocritical. You have to treat the sin in the church the same way as you do outside the church. But the sin in the church should be more serious to you because those are the people who say they've been born again and purchased purchased by the blood of Christ. You are not to get mixed up with them, mingle with them, have a close relationship with them because they are hypocrites. Because they are living one way and saying another. Now, very clearly, this word, anyone who bears the name of brother, in the Greek it has this connotation, so-called brother. Uh, so-called, this person who calls themselves a believer that's the context there. Those who claim the name of Christ but live a completely different way. Now, again, the context is what? The context is this man. Remember, Paul says you are to remove him from among you. You are to deliver him over to Satan. So what Paul is saying, once you remove him from your fellowship, you are saying you are not a Christian. We cannot affirm your faith any longer. So for the Corinthians to put them under church discipline and to remove them, but then to go eat like nothing ever happened, what good does that do? And we'll talk about that in a minute. But let's be honest here. What is the condition? Because there is a condition. Do not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler this is very important if he is guilty again he lists all the sins here sexual immorality like we said all kinds of sexual sin greed what is greed being a lover of money always wanting more never being content gotta have gotta spend gotta get it idolater worshiping false gods reviler that is someone who is, a, the word reviler in the original language is, implies one who is a slanderer. 
or a gossip, one who abuses people with their words to tear them down and to destroy their character or reputation, one who is causing strife and contention, a drunkard, not someone who drinks alcohol, but someone whose life is controlled by alcohol where they lose all inhibition, where they lose control of their mind and their judgment. Someone who is drunk, that is what is sinful, not someone who drinks, but someone who is drunk, a drunkard, and a swindler. A swindler is a con artist, a deceitful person, one who tricks people into something to gain. So, sexually immoral, greedy, idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler. Now, can we be honest in here? If we were to go through this list, there probably isn't one of us in this room that isn't guilty of at least one of these things. If we were to say, leave the room now, if, you are, if you've done this in your life, all of us would leave the room. Are we preaching yet? All of us, including the man speaking right now, would leave this room. And this is why you have to understand what this passage is saying in context. Because as a group, as a group collectively, I guarantee you that at least one of us has abused God's design for sex, either with our bodies or with the lust within our own hearts. One of us has used greed as a ways to get more than what we truly need. One of us has worshipped things or people other than God and probably no more than worship ourselves. One of us has at least gossiped or slandered others, ruining their reputations. And one of us has at least been controlled by foreign substances. We've been high or drunk and we've lost control of our bodies because of intoxicants. So what do we do, Dan? <laughs> well, Paul says not to associate with anyone who is guilty. That's it. Everyone leave. Don't talk to anyone on the way out. <laughs> do not mix with. Do not mingle. Leave in silence. That's not what Paul's saying here. Because again, we'd all leave the room. We couldn't talk to anyone in the church because we're all guilty of this. What is Paul saying? Well, look, let's look at what he is not saying. What Paul is not saying is this. If anyone was guilty, it's not what he says. If he does say, if anyone, was, if anyone was guilty of these things, then we're all in trouble. He says, is guilty. This is where understanding the original words that Paul uses makes all the difference. The word that is translated is guilty is grammatically in the present active tense in the Greek, which implies what? A present active tense in the Greek implies an action with continuing results. Meaning this is not something in the past, but this is something happening now and it's continuing to happen with continual result. He is guilty, not was guilty. It's not, a, it's not that a person has committed sexual immorality, 
but if they are presently continuing in sexual immorality. It's not if they have been greedy, but are they living in a present state of greed with continuing results? And so on. Gossip, slander, drunkenness. It's not if they've ever been drunk or ever been high or ever lost judgment. It's are they continuing to live in such a way without repentance? And see, that's the key. Because repentance is what marks the Christian life. There's not a Christian who stops sinning. I wish that were true. We will keep on sinning until the day we die because we wrestle with two natures. We wrestle with our old self and we wrestle with our new self. The difference between Christians and non-Christians is that Christians repent of sin. And repentance is not just feeling sorry or remorseful for the things you have done. And say, well, I'm going to do it again tomorrow, but I feel bad about it today. No. Repentance is a true turning away. A true change of mind is what the word means, metanoia. It's a change of mind, a change of direction, that I'm leaving that behind and moving on. Of course, we wrestle with our flesh. We wrestle with our past desires. We struggle with our weaknesses. And for some of us, some of these weaknesses might be a problem the rest of our lives to some degree. The problem is, are you fighting against it? Are you warring against it? Is it a continual habit or pattern in your life? That's the question to ask. Is this something with continuing results that I have no repentance of or from? And again, it's always a sexual sin that always gets the attention. But remember, Paul includes gossip, slander, swindling, idolatry, and drunkenness as well. Hmm. And this is what Paul says in the very first verse. What does he say? It is actually reported that there is, present tense, sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. This man currently, at the present time, is sleeping with his stepmother. Not that he's done it in his past and he's repented of it and now he's, he's got a new lease on life. But right now, he is currently still doing this. So again, what are we to do? And this is where church discipline enters the picture. What is this church discipline? Again, church discipline is for the sake of the sinning member who professes Christ but lives in a way in contrary to that faith. Showing that they may not know Christ truly because of the desires of their heart are continually wicked without any regard for their sin. What Paul is talking about here is the habitual sin in the life of a believer. A so-called brother, he says. One who goes by the name of brother. And this is something that is mentioned throughout the New Testament. Again, it's not if you're going to sin again. Guarantee you, mark it here, you will. Probably in the next 30 seconds. 
is not if, but a when. And when you do, what do you do with it? What was your attitude, attitude in it and towards it? How are you fighting and warring? How are you running to Christ? What changes are you making in your life so that doesn't happen again? There's no one who's perfect. There's no one who remains pure. Because we wrestle with our old selves. As we are being sanctified. As we are being made holy. It's a process. Here's the thing. I'm a lot holier today than I used to be. And that's your situation as well. Every Christian. I'm not who I ought to be. But thank God I'm not who I used to be. If that could be said of you, welcome to Christianity. Again, the problem is, is guilty. Present tense, active with continuing results, with no fruit of repentance in your heart. That's a problem. And that's where the church steps in and says, hey, we can no longer affirm your faith. If you continue to do this with any, any regard for Christ, the gospel, or your own soul. And this is where this man was in Corinth. John speaks a lot about habitual sin in the life of a Christian in his first epistle. Go with me to 1 John chapter 2 to see what John also says about the same thing that Paul does. In 1 John chapter 2... Verse 3 through 5. And by this we know, John says, that we have come to know him. How do we know that we are truly saved? How do we know that we truly know Christ? If, here's a condition, we keep his commandments. Is there any desire to obey God? That's the first step. What are the desires of your heart? Yes, we all have desires to sin. But do we have a desire to obey God? Do we truly want to obey Him because we love Him? Or do we love ourselves more? Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is, is not in him. Again, here John plays the same card that Paul does. If anyone, a so-called brother, or if anyone says that they are a brother, but lives in this way, do not associate with him. Do not be mixed up with him. Here John says, whoever says, I know him, he's quoting someone, but then does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. There ought to be some proof in the pudding. And again, 
does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in. But whoever keeps his word, guess what? That word is also in the present active tense. A present action with a continuing results. Hmm. A true Christian is one who does not persist in habitual sin without any regard for the sake of their soul or of the Lord Jesus or an obligation to repent before a holy God. But one that says, this is what God has said. I am guilty. Oh God, help me to overcome this. There has been a change in my life and I'm fighting against sin. There's a war that's been waged in my soul and I'm not going to sit on the sidelines. John says this in 1 John chapter 3. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Now that's a troubling verse because... If you're born of God, it means you're born again, you're a Christian, and you're like, Dan, I've been practicing sinning my whole life. The question is this, not if you continue to sin. The question is what? Again, is there repentance? Because again, practice of sinning refers to habitual sin. Again, present active voice, it's an action with continuing results. Meaning, your old life is the same as your so-called new life. If your old life is the same as your so-called new life, guess what? You don't have a new life. You still have an old life that you are calling a new life, which is why John says you're a liar and the truth is not in you. Hmm. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Meaning it is impossible for a truly genuine born-again Christian to habitually sin without repentance. Impossible. Because he has been born of God. 1 John 5, 18 and 19, John says it again. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Same thing, present active, continuing results. Keep on sinning. But he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Again and again, we see this command from God very clearly. So the problem in Corinth is, here's this guy who is sleeping with his stepmother. You all know it's wrong. Matter of fact, culturally it's wrong. This is not even something that's just wrong that the church says is wrong. It was against Roman law to have this kind of relationship. So it's not something that even had to be taught. It's just natural. You don't do that. And so even the world says it's a sin God's law says it's sin, and you are ignoring those people because they're sinners. But the sinners among you, you turn a blind eye, you're arrogant, Paul says to the Corinthians. You're prideful and your boasting is your shame. So call this man to repentance. 
The fact that he's living in such a way tells you that he's not truly saved. So treat him, deliver him over to Satan. It's tough words. That's what Paul says. As we said last week, that sounds very unloving, but it's actually the most loving thing they could do. Now, how does that play itself out? Because then Paul, let's go back to 1 Corinthians. In verse 11, he says, Now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler. But then he says this, What does it mean to not associate? Like we said, not mingled, not mixed up with. He says, not even to eat with such a one. Paul says, do not even eat with this man anymore after you remove him. Now, why? Because especially in the first century world and culture, to share a meal with someone was a sign of commonality. It was a sign of approval. It was a sign of close relationships. So, let's use the analogy here. If you're going to remove him from among you and deliver him over to Satan, how can you sit down and have a meal with him? By having a meal with him, you're approving of him. That's not delivering him over to Satan. That's not treating him like an unbeliever. You're treating him like he is a believer. And especially when the church got together in the first century, they would have these um, feet, they would have these feasts together. They were known as agape feasts. The word agape is one of the Greek words for love, especially the kind of love that God has, sacrificial love, agape feasts. And so we'd get together, and, and this is how I know, uh, you know, probably most of the people in the first century were Baptists because they loved to eat all the time. <laughs> agape feasts were these large communal meals in which the church would gather to eat, to share fellowship, closeness, and relationships. They would also, at these agape feasts, also observe the Lord's Supper, which Paul will later deal with later on in chapter 11. And so, when he says not even to eat such a, with such a one, I believe Paul is referencing these agape feasts that they were accustomed to having, where the whole church gets together, one big happy family, we're all in Jesus, we're all brothers and sisters, and we're eating and we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. When he says, don't even eat with such a one, he says, yeah, remove the leaven from among you. You can't do that and treat him in the same way, because by doing that, you're only going to affirm him in his sin. And that's not loving. That's actually the most hateful thing you can do. See, and this is what the world wants us to do now, right? They want us to be um, gender affirming and all these different things that are just nonsense. When someone is believing a lie and you have to agree with their lie and that is so-called loving, no thank you. That is actually the most hateful thing you can do. Tell people the truth and speak in love. And so by not associating, not even eating with this man, boy, that seems harsh. But no. 
It's a message to you that we love you too much to let you keep living that way. And you're not going to say you're a brother and keep living like that and become a part of this happy big family that we're all eating together in a agape. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Now why? Why do we do this? And here's, here's the big thing I want you to take away from today. Because we... As members of Christ's body, when we join a local church, we're saying, these are my people. These are my people. I belong to them. And they belong to me. And if that's true, and it is, it means this. That we also have a responsibility towards one another. We have responsibilities towards one another as members of Christ's body. That's who we are. Paul will later tell the Corinthians, some of you are the hands, the feet, the nose, the eyes, the ears, the mouth. You're all a part of Christ's body. Well, my body cares about the rest of my body. And helps each other. And has a responsibility for another. They all serve a different part of my body. They all have a purpose. And they all work together because we love all of Dan. What's there not to love of me? There's a lot to love of me too. The same thing with Christ's body. We have a responsibility towards one another. And this is why making a commitment to membership in a local church is biblical and needed Because there's no such thing as a churchless Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian apart from the community of God. There's no such, you can't find one in the New Testament, a Christian that didn't belong to a local church. Church membership lets us answer Cain's age old question. Remember what Cain said? Am I my brother's keeper? And the New Testament and the New Covenant, because of the Lord Jesus, yes, we are our brother's keeper. Because we have a responsibility towards one another in the body of Christ. So we cannot turn a blind eye and let you live in a way that says, you might be going to hell. We love you too much to go to hell, so we're going to warn you and call you to repentance and treat you like you tell us that you are. You say you're a believer, then show us by your repentance. That's what the Lord Jesus commanded in Matthew 18. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. We have a responsibility towards one another. Yes, we are each other's keeper. If you saw someone about to fall down, you'd be there ready to pick them up. Maybe even help them from falling. If you saw someone getting, almost getting ready to be hurt, you would try to stop them from being hurt. Why? Because you care for them and love them. The same is true when it comes to the responsibility that one another walks in holiness in the church. Because... We have a responsibility to each other. 
A church is not just a bunch of random people that show up in a building for an hour and 15 minutes. Church is not something you attend. Church is something you are. You and me together are the church. And that we worship together. But this service is not the church. This building is not the church. You and I walking in love together in relationships are the church because we've been purchased by the blood of our Savior have been made whole and assembled into one family together. And when one part of our body is sick, we go to the doctor and we take medicine or we get an operation or we get surgery. The same thing is true of our church family. When one part of our family is sick or diseased or ready to die, then then we care for it because we have a responsibility towards that brother or sister. Just like the lump, Paul says, you got to take out the leaven. You got to take out the leaven. You have a responsibility towards one another. This is what he says in verse 12. Verse 12, he says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Again, we live in a very mind-your-own-business society, culture, right? But as a family... We take care of family matters because we love each other. Not for punishment. This is not for punishment, but for true love and caring for one another. And I think God will hold us accountable of how we do that. I truly do. God holds me accountable how I pastor this church. And I think God holds us accountable together as a family. How we treat one another. How we hold each other accountable. How we encourage one another. Guard one another. Protect one another. Love one another. Now there's so many commands in the New Testament that show us that this is biblical and true and our responsibility. Yet so many of you just show up at the last second. You leave the quick second it's over. You don't have any interaction with anyone else in your church the rest of the week. And that's not what it means to be part of a church. What it means to be part of a church is that you're part of a family and you're involved. You're involved because you say, this is where I'm putting my flag of faith. This is where I belong. These people belong to me and I belong to them and I have a responsibility here. This is what it looked like in the New Testament. This is what it looked like in the book of Acts. That nobody in the church had a need. When there was one person who had a need in the church, what did they do? Somebody who had two of something sold one so that the other person who didn't can have a need. Why? Because they all belong to one another. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, we see one of these one another commands. Paul tells the Romans, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. These one another commands are written to believers in the context of a local church. Yes, we're to love all people, true. But these one another's are given to the church in community with one another. 
Hebrews chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Notice here, Paul is not talking to the pastors of the church, the elders of the church. He's not saying, hey, elders, make sure that you're doing this to your church. Doesn't. Who's he talking to here? Take care, brothers. He's talking about the people in the church because every member has a responsibility. This is not just a charge given to the elders. It's just not the pastor's job to follow up with you when you're in the hospital. It's not the pastor's job just to follow up, follow up with you when you miss a Sunday or two. It's not the pastor's job to help you and encourage you. Because guess what? I can't do it all. Nor will I try to pretend like I will. Because when the body of Christ is acting the way it ought to be. And it is functioning like a oiled machine like God has planned it. Every member sees the responsibility towards one another with great passion and zeal. Like we care for a part of our body that is sick and we run to the doctor for help. Take care, brothers, lest any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart. You should come in every Sunday. Look who's here. Talk to people. Trust me, that's a novel thing, isn't it? Talk to people. Pray for one another. Encourage. Get together during the week. Hey, do you want to come over for dinner? Let's go get some lunch. Come to Dan's house. He'll beat you at a board game. Play. Laugh. Cry. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together. As is the habit of some. Oh, there's some people in this. Getting this Hebrews letter. They were missing a lot of church. But what does... The writer of Hebrews say to the church, but encouraging one another. Whoa, it's just not the pastor or the deacons who are to go after people who don't show up after a while. All of us should be caring enough to say, hey, where have you been? I haven't seen you in a while. You okay? Can I help you? Amazing. And then one more from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy. Again, who is this verse written to? It's written to the whole church. See to it that no one fails to obtain grace, that there's no bitterness that causes up trouble, division, dissension in the church, gossip, slander, defiling many people. No one is sexually immoral. This is just not the job of elders. It's the job of the church family. This is what I want you to get from this whole message. You matter, 
and we matter, and we are to love each other in a way that we see each other as being responsible. This is what it means to be a part of a church family. So, again, going back to what Paul says here about this man. Is it not, going back to verse 12, they were judging outsiders. <laughs> they said, Paul says, what have I to do with them? God's going to judge them. But there are people we are to judge. And the word judge gets a lot of bad rap. It's actually a great word. It means to discern. It means to come to a conclusion. A right conclusion. Like a judge gives justice according to the law. So are we to determine, hey, this person needs our help. Let's help them. It's not those inside the church whom you are to judge. Oh, God has given this charge to us, brothers and sisters. The question for you is multiple. How do you see yourself as responsible as a church member for those inside your church? And by the way, I love you all. And you all are amazing and loving and kind. When there's a need, it's met. Someone has something break, we go fix it. Someone has short of funds, we meet them. Someone needs, we do a good job at this. But we can always do better. We could always do better. We could always love each other more. We could always get more involved. We could always call each other to grace and holiness and forgiveness in Jesus Christ because we matter together. Christ has purchased us with his own blood. So let's treat the church for what it is, valuable, beyond measure, beyond worth of this world. And treat church membership for what it is, a high calling, a high calling given to us by God in Jesus Christ to make that commitment, to join the church, to say, these are my people. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. What a blessing it is to preach this passage. Father, I pray that you would help us apply it to our lives. Father, help us to see the responsibility that we have towards one another. This is the main message that Paul wanted the Corinthians to see. They were treating this man like they had no responsibility towards him, letting him live any way he wanted without regard for his soul. But Father, you love us too much. Your church matters way too much. And help us to love one another just beyond the walking in holiness together. But God, help us to truly meet each other's needs, caring for one another. This is not just the job of the elders of the church, the deacons of the church, but the whole church together, calling on the sick, calling on the lonely, calling on the discouraged, calling on the weak, calling on the widows, May our relationships be much 
further than what happens in this room. But what happens outside these walls? May our bond not just be strong when we gather, but also when we scatter. For you have purchased us with your own blood. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you for what you're doing in this church. Thank you for the forgiveness we have in Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray for the repentance of those who are continuing to sin in a way that maybe is showing that their soul is in jeopardy. Not that they have in danger of losing their salvation, but maybe showing that they were never saved to begin with. Father, may you help us make repentance a continual part of our daily life. I pray for those who, that Paul mentions in this letter, the sexually immoral, the greedy, idolaters, slanderers, swindlers. May there be true repentance. May none of us be present, active, continuing results of these sins habitually. Create such a hatred for sin in our hearts and a love for Christ that the power of this sin which seemingly controls us is made deaf to our hearts by the blinding glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us now, God, to remember your gospel as we sing. Apply this word to our hearts in applicable ways, appropriate ways to each person in this room. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. May you repent of your sins and believe the gospel. May you be encouraged by this song if you're a Christian and may you know that you need to be saved if you're not. And we can help you. If you want to talk to me after the service, we'll talk to you about what it means to know Jesus in a saving way. Let's stand as we sing this beautiful song, His Mercy is More.